Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep A Vision of Judgment by H.G. Wells. This is first published in The Butterfly, a humorous and artistic magazine, uh, September 1899. Um, it's not signed by H.G. Uh, Wells. However, uh, he is the author of it. It's signed uh, D.O. I don't know why it would be signed D.O. There, um, I don't know what it would stand for, but I'd love to hear some speculation if you have some. Uh, the other reason to check out the PDF, other than to see the strange signature, is um, because it has Sidney Syme illustrations. And I'm a huge Sidney Syme man. Uh, he is most commonly associated, in at least my mind, with the writings of Lord Dunsany. And uh, these are quite different in style than his other Lord Dunsany works. <laughs> And the story is different in style from Dunsany as well. Oh, very. Although they both had a good sense of humor, H.G. Uh, Wells and uh, Lord Dunsany. Their focus is different. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about... They are contemporaries, but Lord Dunsany, um, he is interested in science, but not in the way H.G. Wells is. No. Well, that's going to be... You know, I was going to pose a question, but I think maybe I don't want to preposition the reading. All so right. let's let people make some decisions. I, I, I will say um, that it's written in parts, mm -hmm. uh, numbered parts. I'll just say the part numbers. They mm -hmm. are not written to be read. They're just visually there. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some stuff that um, is meant to be incredible noise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I I I don't think I can do it, but I'm going to try. Yep. So, you know, what? bear with me. <laughs> it's uh, nine parts, and it takes about nine minutes to read. But they are of different lengths, so, okay. Yep. <clears throat> A Vision of Judgment. I listened, not understanding. Good Lord, said I, still only half awake. What an infernal shindy. It's enough, said I, to wake and stop short. Where was I? Louder and louder. It's either some new invention. Deafening. No, said I, speaking loud in order to hear myself. That's the last trump. Two. The last note jerked me out of my grave like a hooked minnow. I saw my monument, rather a mean little affair, and I wished I knew who'd done it. And the old elm tree and sea view vanished like a puff of steam. And then all about me, a multitude no man could number, nations, tongues, kingdoms, people, children of all the ages in an amphitheatral space as vast as the sky. And over against us, seated on a throne of dazzling white cloud, the Lord God and all the host of his angels. I recognized Azrael by his darkness and Michael by his sword and the great angel who had blown the trump stood with the trumpet still half raised three prompt 
said the little man beside me, very prompt. Do you see the angel with the book? He was ducking and craning his head about to see over and under and between the souls that crowded round us. Everybody's here, he said, everybody, and now we shall know. There's Darwin, he said, going off on a tangent. He'll catch it. And there, you see, that tall, important-looking man trying to catch the eye of the Lord God. That's the Duke, but there's a lot of people one doesn't know. Oh, there's Priggles, the publisher. I have wondered about printer's overs. Prickles was a clever man, but we shall know now even about him. I shall hear all that. I shall get most of the fun before my letters S. He drew the air in between his teeth. Historical characters too. See, there's Henry VIII. That'll be a good bit of evidence. Oh, damn. He's Tudor. He lowered his voice. Notice this chap just in front of us, all covered with hair. Paleolithic, you know. And there again, but I did not heed him because I was looking at the Lord God. Four. Is this all? Asked the Lord God. The angel at the book, it was one of countless volumes like the British Museum reading room catalog, glanced at us and seemed to count us in and, and seemed to count us in the instant. That's all, he said, and added, it was, O oh God, a very little planet. The eyes of God surveyed us. Let us begin, said the Lord God. Five. The angel opened the book and read a name. It was a name full of A's, and the echoes of it came back out of the uttermost parts of space. I did not catch it clearly because the little man beside me said in a sharp jerk, what's that? It sounds like Ahab to me, but it could not have been this Ahab of scripture. Instantly, a small black figure was lifted up to a puff of cloud at the feet of God. It was a stiff little figure, dressed in rich outlandish robes and crowned, and it folded its arms and scowled. Well, said God, looking down at him. We were privileged to hear the reply, and indeed the acoustic properties of the place were marvelous. I plead guilty, said this little figure. Tell them what you have done, said the Lord God. I was a king, said the little figure, a great king, and I was lustful and proud and cruel. I made wars. I devastated countries. I built palaces, and the mortar was the blood of men. Hear, O God, the witnesses against me calling to you for vengeance, hundreds and thousands of witnesses. He waved his hands toward us. And worse, I took a prophet, one of your prophets, one of my prophets, said the Lord God. And because he would not bow to me, I tortured him for four days and nights. And in the end, he died. I did more. Oh, God, I blasphemed. I robbed you of your honors. Robbed me of my honors, said the Lord God. I caused myself to be worshipped in your stead. No evil was there, but I practiced it. No cruelty wherewith I did not stain my soul. And at last you smote me, O God. God raised his eyebrows slightly, and I was slain in battle. And so I stand before you, meet for your nethermost hell, out of your greatness, daring no lies, daring no pleas, but telling the truth of my iniquities before all mankind. He ceased. His face I saw distinctly, and it seemed to me white and terrible and proud and strangely noble. I thought of Milton's Satan. Most of that is from the obelisk, said the recording angel, finger on page. 
It is, said the tyrannous man with a faint touch of surprise. Then suddenly God bent forward and took this man in his hand and held him up on his palm as if to see him better. He was just a little dark stroke in the middle of God's palm. Did he do all this? said the Lord God. The recording angel flattened his book with his hand. In a way, said the recording angel carelessly. Now when I looked again at the little man, his face had changed in a very curious manner. He was looking at the recording angel with a strange apprehension in his eyes, and one hand fluttered to his mouth. Just the movement of a muscle or so, and all that dignity of defiance was gone. Read, said the Lord God. And the angel read, explaining very carefully and fully all the wickedness of the wicked man. It was quite an intellectual treat. A little daring in places, I thought. But of course... Six. Everybody was laughing. Even the prophet of the Lord, whom the wicked man had tortured, had a smile on his face. The wicked man was really such a preposterous little fellow. And then read the recording angel with a smile that set us all agog. One day, when he was a little irascible from overeating, he, oh, not that, cried the wicked man. Nobody knew of that. It didn't happen, screamed the wicked man. I was bad. I was really bad, frequently bad. But there was nothing so silly, so absolutely silly. The angel went on reading. Oh, God, cried the wicked man, don't let them know that. I'll repent. I'll apologize. The wicked man on the hand of God began to dance and weep. Suddenly, shame overcame him. He made a wild rush to jump off the ball of God's little finger, but God stopped him by a dexterous turn of the wrist. Then he made a rush for the gap between the hand and thumb, but the thumb closed, and all the while the angel went on reading the truth about a human soul. The wicked man rushed to and fro across God's palm and then suddenly turned about and fled up the sleeve of God. I expected God would turn him out, but the mercy of God is infinite. The recording angel paused. Eh? said the recording angel. Next, said God, and before the recording angel could call the name, a hairy creature in filthy rags stood upon God's palm. Seven. Has God got hell up his sleeve then, said the little man beside me. Is there a hell, I asked. If you notice, he said, he peered between the feet of the great angels, there's no particular indication of a celestial city. Shh, said a little woman near us, scowling. Hear this blessed saint. Eight. He was Lord of the earth, but I was the prophet of the God of heaven, cried the saint, and all the people marveled at the sign, for I, O Lord, knew of the glories of thy paradise, no pain, no hardship, gashing with knives, splinters thrust under my nails, strips of flesh flayed off, all for the glory and honor of God. God smiled. And at last I went, I in my rags and sores, smelling of my holy discomforts. And Gabriel laughed abruptly and lay outside his gates as a sign, as a wonder, as a perfect nuisance, said the recording angel, and began to read, heedless of the fact that the saint was still speaking of the gloriously unpleasant things he had done, that paradise might be his. And behold, in that book, the record of the saint also 
was a record of motives, a revelation, a marvel. So that in a minute, the saint also was rushing to and fro over the palm of God, and at last he also shrieked beneath the flail of that terrible enlightenment and fled also, even as the wicked man had fled, into the shadow of the sleeve. And it was permitted us to see into the shadow of the sleeve. And the two sat side by side, stark of all delusions, in the shadow of the robe of God's charity, like brothers. And thither also I fled in my turn. Nine. And now, said God, as he shook us out of his sleeve upon the planet he had given us to live upon, the planet that whirled about green Sirius for a sun, now that you understand me and each other a little better, try again. Then he and his angels turned themselves and vanished out of space, but the light of their laughter abides with me still. All about me was a beautiful land, more beautiful than any I had ever seen on earth, waste, austere, and wonderful. And all about me were the enlightened souls of men in bodies very fair to see. So, I read a lot of H.G. Wells. Um, One of the reasons I have read so much H.G. Wells is because... It's like having a great friend from a previous century. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's wise, he's funny, he has good stories. Um, And, uh, you know, he's he's like me, he's not religious, um, but he understands the compelling power of religious thinking. Um, I read a little bit of his autobiographical autobiographical writings and he talks about how uh i think it was age 11 or something he he says this god stuff is bullshit (laughs) um and then i believe you paraphrase oh yes i'm paraphrasing slightly um and then uh i think he he later on wrote something about how um in a novel from 1922 that i have not read uh he he did one last little sin uh, talking about God as if he was a real guy, but um, I, I, he's a lot like Arthur C. Clarke. He's a very um, atheistic person who is uh, much interested in why uh, the power of deity and particularly the Judeo-Christian deity is, you know, the monotheistic deity is uh, so looming large in the human mind. So this story is supposed to be funny but it also is transcendent of that right it's it goes beyond that and it it takes away uh you know it starts with the the last trump which is a biblical sort of idea and it ends uh on another planet orbiting sirius so it does what basically wells is doing throughout his writing he's thinking deep uh, very deeply i think um funny but also deep I really like your reading there, Eric. Um, I, I, I hadn't thought about it before, but the words of God in here, you're, you're good at reading <laughs> the words of God. Um, because um, he is compassionate, um, and he, he's a, 
I don't know if he's playing dumb. Like, he doesn't know that all, these are all the people there. Uh, I mean, I guess the angels are sort of his, his part of him, too. So maybe, the, you know, he, he farms out that part of his mind to, uh, you know, Gabriel or whoever, the recording angel. But ultimately, uh, his judgment is that humanity is, is very silly and cute rather than <laughs> um, wicked. Uh, yes, we're wicked. But uh, we make a we make a virtue of our wickedness. Where he's like, "Oh, you silly little puppy!" <laughs> right. You know, there are at least um, at least two other aspects of Wells's habitual practice that I sense in this uh, lovely story. I mean, it's it's called a vision of judgment, as if mm-hmm. it had no story attached to it. But but it really does have a beginning, middle, and end. It, it awakens by. I mean, it begins by someone being ejected or d- propelled out of his own grave, and his first concern is um, where capitalism has has led him wrong. Right? <laughs> I had just a you know a crummy little monument there. Who did that? Um, but it ends with something that represents a new chance, mm-hmm. and I think that. Uh, that this is, in fact, the case for most of Wells's most famous writings from this period, the, mm. the last decade of the 19th century. At the end of the War of the Worlds, for example, um, when the microbes that no one had expected, which said when, that the littlest thing that God had put upon the earth had created, had, had putrefied the invaders. But whether this was a reprieve for them or for us, we did not yet know. Mm-hmm. Right? What, what Wells does, and there's another story, of course, that makes many, many references to, uh, to the Judeo-Christian heritage, including um, East of Eden and references to a pillar of, a column of, a smoke and a pillar of fire, mm-hmm. so all sorts of things. I wouldn't, won't go through an analysis of that short novel at this moment. But the fact is that with, as you say, this concern that using these myths that are well known touches on something that's crucial in people's understanding and therefore can be used to communicate his ideas. This is typical of Wells. He's respectful of the cultural power of these things without being a believer in God or miracles. But then how does he use them? And at the end of the War of the Worlds, he says, basically, it's up to us. And at the end here, it's basically up to us. Mm -hmm. Right? It's up to us. So this this is not just a story where you read it and say, well, this is the end. This is one of those stories as, you know, in his experiment in autobiography, um, that's the title of, of that autobiographical book of his, he says that of all of the things that he had done, you know, he'd been a playwright and a journalist and a, a novelist and in some little times a, a poet. Um, he said what really he was throughout his entire life was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And it's a story like this that's meant to teach us that we need to take responsibility. So that's that's one aspect of Wells, I think, that, that comes through here quite strongly. But there's another. And this is why, despite all the references to God and the Bible and so on, it is science fiction. Yep. Because it's concerned with knowledge. It's concerned with knowledge. And there's an interesting... 
an interesting apparent antagonism in the views of knowledge that are presented here. On the one hand, if things are viewed from a sufficient distance, the differences between them get washed out. Yep. Right? At the end of his famous short story, um, The Star, which itself makes reference to the star over Bethlehem and which Arthur C. Clarke responds to years later with another story called The Star that really does explicitly reference the, the, the star of Bethlehem. Um, in The Star, after the near collision, the, but the miss, of a celestial object changes Earth's orbit, changes its climate, and, you know, cataclysmic. Most of humanity is destroyed, and those that are left are moved toward the poles. It says, but Martian astronomers, for there are astronomers on Mars, were surprised to see how little damage had been done mm-hmm. when viewed from a distance of a few million miles. Mm-hmm. Right, so when you're all the way up there with God, and when a saint and a sinner colossal saint and colossal sinner have run up to hide themselves in the sleeve of God, (laughs) looking at them from this celestial, eternal distance, they're sitting side by side. And we know nothing of the narrator, whatever he did, except that he had a not particularly impressive monument (laughs) over his grave when he died. And yet he's sitting right there with them so that when they get shaken out of God's sleeve, he's shaken out with them. Mm -hmm. So what has happened? Why have they gone running into God's sleeve? Why did they finally feel fearful? Although they each had thought of themselves as terrific. The king um, bragging about his cruelty and the the, uh, saint about his suffering. (laughs) What we're told is they suffered in God's presence from enlightenment. Mm -hmm. When they really had knowledge, when they had detailed knowledge, it shamed them. But God, in his wisdom, didn't punish them. He hoped that that knowledge would allow them to try again, Mm -hmm. do better. And he shakes them down onto a new planet, including our narrator. And what I'm suggesting, and I'd love to have some ideas from you about this, on the one hand, Wells consistently treats knowledge as if perspective is such that it can wipe out differences and you you have no ability to deny that. That means viewed from far enough away, I mean, viewed from Europe, Jesse, you and I, live close to each other yeah we're neighbors right? but exactly you know but viewed from the people down the hall from my apartment you're across the continent yeah we're right? aliens so, <laughs> exactly exactly so on the one hand wells is right that knowledge has to be completely conceptual uh, uh contextualized but on the other hand what he says is you need true detailed knowledge to be able to guide your behavior. If this story is a call to do better, we need to figure out how to do better 
by taking detailed account of what we really have been so far. Is there a contradiction there between knowledge gets wiped out, that as distinctions get wiped out, and we need to find those distinctions in order to do better? Or is it only in God's mind that that, that that gets resolved? Yeah, I think it's a perceptual problem, as usual with humans. Um, what I what I like about this uh, and this uh, in this humorous magazine, this humorous story, is um, in revealing the deep dark horrors of everybody's soul, all the stupid little things they did, the petty little things they did. Everybody's having a hilarious time, right? Gabriel's laughing, all oh, the audience is laughing, but that's not what we're we're all expecting. Um, I, I don't. I, I was thinking that the narrator is, or the viewpoint character is um, Wells, but I, he might not be. He might. He might be the little man next to Wells. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the reasons is um, we get the ex- uh, right at the beginning in that those opening and right. Um, he he he's he's making mistakes. He says. A good lord, I said, and still only half awake. <laughs> what an infernal shindy. I don't know what a shindy is, but uh, infernal, I know it, what that means. Shindy is, in this case, it's like shindig. It's a, yeah, it it's a loud and noisy party. Right. And then it's enough to, uh, said I, to wake, and then he doesn't finish the thought. <laughs> but it's the <laughs> devil, right? <laughs> oh, I thought it meant wake the dead. Oh, yeah. That, there's, oh, that, you're right. You're right. I guess I was I was read, leading in through the infernal. Um, but the idea of of them not knowing what this is, and he says, "Oh my God, that's the last Trump," and then it continues. <laughs> Tura! So it wasn't the last Trump; it was the second to last Trump. He's wrong about everything, right? And then uh, we get that little funny bit about oh, the mean little affair of his monument. But if you look at the rest of it, it, it's by an old elm tree with a sea view. That's actually a pretty nice grave. Right, <laughs> um, and then we get the the little man prompt said the little man be somebody very prompt. Do you see the <laughs> angel with the book? He was ducking and craning his head about to see over and under and between the souls that crowded around us. Everybody's here, he said. Everybody, and now we shall know know what. Oh, and then he says, "There's Darwin." He said, "He said, going off on a tangent, <laughs> he'll catch it." <laughs> <laughs> so whose judgment is that, right? Well, we we think, oh no, Darwin, he should he should he did he did good under God's uh, domain, right? He did it, he did pretty well. But then um, the next the next guy, he says, oh, there's Priggles, the publisher. I've always wondered about printers overs. Priggles was a clever man, but we shall know now even about him. Um, and then we find out. Uh, that it's going to be in alphabetical order. Everybody's going to be judged in alphabetical order, which is ridiculous, right? Um, and then uh, Henry VIII shows up. Oh, and by the way, Eric, I love that uh, uh, John Wayne's in this. <laughs> it says, um, uh, look at that man trying to catch the eye of the Lord. That's the Duke. <laughs> 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 you know, that's how prescient... Um, yeah, H.G. Wells is. Wells was. Everybody's here, right? <laughs> um, then he says, right. my letter is S. Um, and then he gets upset. He's not going to find out about Henry Tudor because 
<laughs> S becomes before D. Um, exactly. Um, and then we find out a little line here uh, that a Paleolithic man uh, is in the judgment. So pre pre uh, history humans get to be in the in the judgment. Sure. And that reminded me of uh, a very famous novel by uh, was Jose Farmer, Philip Jose Farmer, called "To Your Scattered Bodies Go." Mm. That that when I read that when I was quite young, uh, it blew me away. This is a vision of judgment. Everybody is reincarnated on a a planet, and um, uh, one of them is a caveman. And uh, here we get Hitler, or no, not Hitler. We get I don't know one of the Nazis, um, and we get uh, historical figures, Richard Burton and Mark Twain, right? But uh, the judge, there is no judgment. There is no uh, explanation for why they're there. Uh, and so this story is doing all sorts of things, blo- blasting our our preconceptions, um, imagining what it means to be judged by God, and then having the rug pulled out from under us and seeing, I mean, the God here is incredibly merciful, right? All he does is shame you by sh- finding out what you've been doing, which he already knew. <laughs> Technically, right? He's got that right. angel reading the list of things. He says, is that all true? It was on the monument. Well, most of it's true. Let's just read a little more here. And everybody's having a hilarious laugh. This is the funniest thing they've ever heard. And they're all, when they get up on God's palm and they're that black little mark on God's palm, uh, they want to escape the vision of God and escape the laughter of their fellow humans. And they run up the sleeve of God and hide. Delicious. There, there are also little things here. I mean, you said, for instance, you asked, you know, what does the D.O. stand for? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know at all. For all I know, it's an in-joke with a friend of his. Right. You know, um, but I, I pretty much guess that when there's a reference to Priggles, and he says, now I'm going to find out about publishers' overs. Mm-hmm. That has to do with whether or not publishers are treating their writers mm-hmm. honestly. Because publishers can claim... Yeah, we um, didn't sell that, that many, sorry. It, it, exactly. But the thing is, they're supposed to, to make more than they sell. That's It's meant to account for waste. Right? So if... Because, you know, printing technology is not as, as efficient um, in 1899 as no. it is now. Um, so, you know, you make extra copies uh, so that if there's a spoiled copy or one gets damaged in having the uh, edges of the signatures cut, that is the, the pages being opened after they've been folded and sewn, um, you've got these extras. But the publisher can claim that the overs were 15% of the run and therefore pay royalties only on the 85% instead of the 95% that they actually sold. And that's a way of cheating the author. Mm-hmm. That's not the biggest issue in the world for most people. No. But it matters to a writer. It does. <laughs> so I'm kind of wondering if maybe you're right that somewhere H.G. Wells is there, that he's the narrator, the <laughs> little man to next to him. Right. He's but, somewhere in that crowd. So are you and so, me. <laughs> we all are. Absolutely. We all are. And what he's telling us, I think, is 
we are misled by not having enough knowledge. Yes. But even when we have knowledge, it still depends upon us to figure out how to deal with this planet we've been given. Mm -hmm. And we can only do it properly. We will be condemned condemned to try again it's not that this is not that angry a god we'll be condemned to try again unless we actually understand what we're doing so this is this is uh, a judgment all right it's a judgment in favor of science Mm -hmm. even though it appears to be about religion in the word science does it relates to the word knowledge right they go together indeed um but uh to me, reading this story, can we really learn anything, Eric? And the answer is yes. Um, there's a line here uh, when the angel's reading about the wicked man, or the wickedness of the wicked man. The narrator, viewpoint character, says it was quite an intellectual treat. Yes, and, and as long as we have that, there's always more to say. And that's this story, an intellectual treat. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.